We're here in Romans chapter 7, looking at verses 13 through 25 this morning. Well, as I was uh, reading and through uh, this week and preparing, I came across this quote from Spurgeon, who was describing his uh, study process and time. And Of course, he was studying in a time when they didn't have lights, they were lit by candles, and they would get there, and, you know, if you're studying at night, you would have a candle lit, and so he was sitting at a desk, his candle lit, and he described a moth that flew in the window, and that moth was heading right for the flame, and he was stopping the moth and keeping it from the flame and redirecting the moth, and the moth would lose some energy and get tired and rest, and he says this, you put your hand out and you stop it, but it is only for a little while that you can keep it from its destruction, for it is desperately set on mischief and bent on suicide. So it is with man, either with naked, overt sin or else with covert lust and ill disposition. He is so besotted and fascinated that he will plunge his soul into ruin. Who can deliver the man who resists deliverance? There's an apt description just as that moth was driven to the light, even to its own death by the flame of the candle. So too the heart of man is just driven to demise. He is driven by his own passions and is heading into destruction. This is what we look at here in Romans seven thirteen through 25. We see the powerlessness of the natural man. What an apt description of that moth, though protected and guarded against the, the ultimate destruction, it is headlong into it. So too with the natural man who receives the truth but opposes it and resists. He goes over God and around God and he seeks to move towards his own destruction. He can be encouraged to do what's right, informed by the truth, have it modeled around him of what godliness looks like, even have very good reasons not to do evil, and yet his heart still engages in the pursuit of evil. And the question is, where does this come from? You know, if we knew the right thing to do, and yet we still practice evil, where does this come from? And that is answered in Romans seven thirteen through 25. It comes from within, man. Man is bent towards sin. That was interesting is in this section, and I find it kind of laughable that as we in God's providence are working our way through this section, Romans chapter 7, 13 through 25, my dear mentor is in his radio series going through the exact same thing, Pastor MacArthur. Of course, he and I don't land on the same spot here, and in this particular case, this is one of those proofs when everyone says, you just graduated from master's, and you just teach everything that he tells you to teach. Well, not so fast. Here we are in our study, and we recognize some differences. It's not to say you know, we take glory in differing. We just take glory in unfolding what the text says, because that's what we were trained to do. Now notice as we worked our way through this text, what we've been recognizing in this text is that Paul is teaching here that the natural man, no matter the religious background or position, is powerless to overcome evil in his life, in his heart. Say it like this, 
The question is, in verse 13 that Paul brings out, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Is the law the problem? And his answer is, may it never be. It's not a problem with the law. The problem is with us. The problem is in the natural man. The natural man cannot keep the law. Here's what was revealed in Romans 7, 13 through 25. What is revealed is the weakness of the law. The law cannot deliver the sinner from his sin. You can condemn him. You can show him the path of righteousness. But it cannot enable him to overcome evil. You can say it like this. No amount of rules will change the heart of man. No amount of rules will, will change the condition of man's state. That's not to say then the rules are wrong. And that's what Paul defends here. It isn't a problem with the rules. It isn't a problem with the law. The problem is with the heart of man. That's where the problem is. We can't create a rule that's then going to make us righteous. We can't create a rule that's then going to protect us. No amount of law keeping, uh, law giving is going to deliver us. So Paul is addressing in this context, Romans 7, 13 through 25, he's addressing the person who has embraced the law. He's addressing the old covenant keeper. He is addressing the person who believes by his own practices he is self-righteous, that he has the ability to make himself right before God. That is the one he is addressing, the one who even believed that he was perfect in his law-keeping. And you would say to me at this point, Who could possibly say that? Who could possibly believe that they were perfect in their law-keeping? Well, let me show you just a couple of examples. First, Paul himself believed that. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. We see this in Philippians chapter 3. Paul makes this comment. This is the audience that Paul is addressing here an audience that had a very high view of themselves. Philippians 3, 4 through 6. Paul says, Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Why? Because, verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee. As to his zeal, a persecutor of the church. And now notice this phrase at the end of verse 6. As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Was the assessment. I have kept all of the law. I have done everything necessary. It was as to what the law would provide. I was able to be blameless. All these various things that he could look at and point to to say that he was Indeed, a favored person by God. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, the favored tribe. He was a, as he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He came even from a religious family. Verse 5, when he says circumcised the eighth day, he didn't jump out of the crib, walk down to the temple and go get circumcised. His parents had to do that for him. Which indicates, again, he had a religious family who were devoted to God, had a religious devotion, and that's what he grew up under. Hebrew of Hebrews, as far as a, um, to the law of Pharisee, he was of the strictest group, the most conservative group who had the highest view of the law. That's what he was a part of growing up. So he's saying, if anyone could have trusted in their own self-reliance, it was me. And of course, he goes on to tell the Philippians he abandoned all of that. 
But what is happening here in Philippians 3, 4 through 6 is his explanation and perspective of the religious background traditions. Turn back to Romans. Let me just show you Romans chapter 9. Turn back to Romans 9. Paul has a heart for the Jews and their perspective. And notice what he says about the Jews and, and their condition in Romans 9. It's very telling what his own heart is, and even in writing the book of Romans, Romans 9, and starting in verse 1, I am telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Meaning he's saying here emphatically, you must believe me. I am not lying. What is this, Paul, then? Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ. For whom? For the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple services, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. He's saying, I have a heart that I wish I could perish, that they would be saved. These who, again, have the covenants, the promises, all the religious heritage, all the religious background and traditions, these are the ones I wish I could save. I would give myself for them. So that's Paul's heart is for these Jews. These Jews who, again, have every custom, every tradition, every spiritual advantage because Christ came from the nation of Israel and because they have the law and they have the temple services and they have the promises and they have the fathers and they have, again, all the religious customs and practices, they should be the ones redeemed. This is Paul's heart here. He has a heart for them. But why are they suffering? Now turn over to Matthew chapter 19, and this is from our scripture reading this morning. The classic Jew grown up under the keeping of the law with all the spiritual privilege, with all the spiritual honor, with all the religious backgrounds and customs, they were still left empty. Remember, again, verse 16, here it says, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? There was an emptiness in this rich young ruler's life. What must I do? Which Jesus answered him, keep the law. Keep all the commandments. Verse, the end of verse 17. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. To which a very natural question. Which commandments? Which ones must I keep? And of course, Jesus lists off a few. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. What was his response? His response wasn't, ah, you're right. I keep failing. In my mind, I I, I keep uh, lusting, and so I'm committing adultery. And in my heart, I keep getting angry, so I'm committing murder. And yeah, I, I haven't honored my parents the way I ought to. That wasn't his response. His response was there in verse 20, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? See, this is the group that Paul is writing to. Paul is writing to the group that believes that they have kept the law perfectly. 
that they are without fault, that they have kept the whole law, that there's nothing lacking in them, and yet they know inherently there's an emptiness. This is the one that Paul has a heart for, a longing for, his own countrymen, his own people, that he would help them see. Turn back to Romans then. This is exactly then Paul's argument through Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7 when he's talking about the grace of God at the end of chapter 5, that the law came that sin may increase, but grace, where sin increased, grace came all the more. To which then the natural question would be, then is your gospel of grace uh, contrary to the law? Does it lead to lawlessness? Chapter 6 says, no, may it never be. The gospel doesn't lead to lawlessness. The gospel leads to righteousness. Because how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And we have new lives. We're no longer living as slaves of righteousness. To which then chapter 7 comes. In chapter 7, the questions would be from the Jews then, what's the purpose of the law? Why was it even given to us? Is this a law? Here we are in verse 13 then. Is the law the problem? Is what was given to me through the law, is that the problem? To which Paul answers, no, it's not the problem with the law. The law is good. The problem's with man. It's with his heart. See, all we're seeing in Romans chapter 7 is Paul's apologetic to the natural Jew who is living in self-righteousness. And he is telling that person, you cannot trust in your own self-righteousness. You will never be able to deliver yourself. That's the grand lesson in this whole section from verse 13 through 25 is the complete inability of the natural man to save himself from, through the law. The law is weak in that sense. The law is really strong in this sense. It is able to reveal unrighteousness. It is able to reveal the righteousness of God. It is perfect in its standard. It affirms the holiness and righteousness of God because God himself keeps it perfectly. Christ kept the law perfectly. So in that sense, the law is strong, it is perfect, it is complete, it is able to reveal guilt, bring condemnation, because it is an immovable, exacting standard. But the law cannot save, it cannot deliver. And that's what we have been seeing as we've worked our way through this series. We've covered the problem described. So verse 13 is the question, and Paul gives the answer. From 14 to 25 is the illustration of the answer. And we saw the problem described in verse 14. While the law is perfect, it is spiritual, it is flawless. I am of the flesh, sold into bondage. I'm not. I'm in slavery and then we saw the problem proven last week, verses 15 through 20, that the heart desires but never fulfills, it wishes but cannot do. It is unable to come under the truth because sin dwells in man. That's why man is weak. Why he, is, he needs the gospel. He needs deliverance because there is the principle of sin ruling within him. Now we get the final four points today. So next week we get to go on to this new section in Romans chapter 8. These final four points are these here. The next point is the problem identified in verse 21 through 23. The problem is identified. Here's what Paul says there. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. 
For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law and the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Here's the proof of the problem that there is this, or, or the identity of the problem. This is the problem identified. The problem is identified as the war of sin within. There is a conflict in this individual. And I believe that this is the best description of the conflict of sin in the natural man who has been informed by God's special revelation. Or to say it differently, somebody who has been spiritually informed but does not have the Spirit of God ruling within them, this is the best description of their condition. They may internally desire have a mind that affirms what's right, but have no spiritual power within to overcome and to do what's right. That's what Paul unfolds here. So he says in verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The word principle, that is the better translation. Some of your translations might say law, but this is the word principle is the better translation here. I find this law, this principle present in me, the one who wants to do good. That is, I hear the truth, I know what's right, but I just keep finding evil present within me. Again, think about it in terms of the rich young ruler. The one who thinks that he's keeping the law all the time. The one who says, when he says, keep the law, his answer is, I've done all of that. And yet he is guilty and he's coming to Jesus and he's asking Jesus, what must I do to be saved? He knows he is guilty here because in the sense, he keeps seeing evil present within him. And then the phrase, verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Many have argued at this point, that phrase, in the inner man, must mean then a believer, right? Because it's in the inner man. The inner man refers to the new life, the one who is born again. Paul said it in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16, I believe. He says there that I am praying that you would be strengthened in the inner man. as your redeemed person. There's some who have argued that this phrase, inner man, means the regenerate man, the believing man. But I would say contextually that's not the case. Why is that? Well, just notice from verse 21 through verse 25 what Paul is contrasting. He contrasts the outer man versus the inner man. He doesn't contrast the believer from the unbeliever. He's contrasting what is external and what is internal. Just notice the phrases, starting in verse 21. I find then the principle that is evil, uh, that evil is present in me. What is that? In my inner man or my whole being. The one who wishes to do good. Where do you wish to do good? In the inner man. For I joyfully concur. Where do you joyfully concur? In the inner man. I joyfully concur with the law of God. Notice, in the inner man. Verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body. What is that? The outer man, the external part. Waging war against the law of the mind. What is that? The inner man. And and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. The outer man. 
Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? What is that? The outer man. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind, inner man, am serving the law. But on the other hand, with my flesh, outer man, the law of sin. The phrase there in verse 22, inner man, isn't the regenerate man. It's talking about his inner parts, his inner being, different from his outer parts, his outer being. That's the context here. Paul is writing, he says, I see this principle. I see this war. I see this natural duplicity within me. Wanting, desiring to do right, and yet failing to follow through, failing to carry it out. The key of this is to see in verse 23, when he says, I see a different, the same word, namas, that was also in verse 21, when he says principle, it should be translated principle there. Here in 23 is also in 21. I see a different principle in my members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. And here's the phrase, and making me a prisoner. That is a regular, continual persistent, unbroken slavery to sin. Making me a regular, continual, persistent prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. This is the problem identified. This person is regularly sold into sin with no deliverance whatsoever, no escape, no hope to get out of it. They are enslaved to this condition. And while he can acknowledge externally that there is a joy in the law and a joy in doing what's good, a joy in righteousness, he finds just a regular slavery, a regularly regularly imprisoned to the law of sin and stuck in that. That's the problem that's described there. And again, this would be the apt description if the rich young ruler was to acknowledge his own life and he recognizes failure, that's what he would see. While he would acknowledge what's good, want to do it, he would find a complete inability to do it. And this is Paul's case here in Romans seven thirteen to 25. The law cannot enable you to do what's right. It can point out the path. It can give you the road map. It can show you what's good, but it cannot enable you. It can only expose the evil within. It can only show you your weakness. It can only show you where you fall short, but it cannot set you free. This is the natural man who can see and affirm and know the law is good, even agree with it in his mind, but only finds within himself his members that are opposed to it and warring against it and unwilling to submit. Sometimes you say, Pastor, that really just sounds like me and my spiritual battle. I just say, hold on to that thought. We will come back to it. Let me finish the thought unfolding here, and then we will answer that very question. How is it that this feels like me, and you've actually described my personal experience? Well, this is, the again, the natural man warring according to the wisdom of his own reasoning, Not warring by the Spirit of God or the grace of God. He is warring in the sense that I'm going to make myself righteous. He is self-atoning and self-righteous. To which is then despair. Notice the pain produced by the problem in verse 24. 
wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? This is the pain produced by the problem of slavery to sin. Wretchedness, wretched man that I am. There is a deep awareness of one's fallenness. And again, the more we know the holy law of God, the more we are able to affirm its righteousness, the more that we can see its perfect standard and agree that it's good, the more that we naturally do it sometimes and then fall short of it, the more guilt that is increased within us that when we fall short, we cry out, verse 24, wretched man that I am. Now some again say, well, again, this is exactly how I experience as a believer. I feel how wretched I am. I'm so poor in keeping the law, and I'm a poor, wretched man. And I would then ask you, do you also forget your theology when you are a wretched man? Because notice the very next question he asks, who will set me free from the body of this death? The word there is tis, and it means who. It doesn't ask when, it means who is going to do this. When in the world did the Apostle Paul forget that Jesus Christ is the Deliverer? Actually, verse 25, he tells us he knows it's Jesus Christ. Who will set me free from this body of death? What was the question a believer is going to ask? The question the believer is going to ask is this, when? When is the time? Every believer, when we struggle with sin, every one of us is struggling, when will this end? First of all, when will I get it right? When will I keep walking in faith? When will Christ come and rescue me from this fleshly body? When will I have my glorified body? When will I be in the eternal kingdom of God? When will righteousness reign and unrighteousness be removed? When will Satan be bound? When will the demons be taken away? When? That's the question every believer is asking. But the natural man... All he has is the law, and he desires to keep the law, and he sees that it is good, and all the law does is point out his flaws and sin. His only, his only answer is, who will deliver me from this? Who is going to rescue me? Again, if Paul's audience is the Jew who lived under the old covenant, who lived in anticipation of the fulfillment of a Messiah to come, who hadn't heard the gospel, if his audience is the person who is living in self-reliance and self-righteousness and self-atonement, if that's his audience, then their question is naturally going to be, then who will deliver me? To which Paul gives the answer in verse 25, and he praises God for the remedy. Look at the praise for the remedy. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. That's the answer to the whole dilemma. This is, this is Paul, the believer. This is Paul, the, the apostle writing. This is Paul giving an answer to the despair that his argument led the person into the very despair of hopelessness that one would have when trusting in the law, the very answer he gives, he cries out, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. You think, at this moment I do believe, this is Paul writing as a believer to his audience, 
And he, his conscience and his heart is so bound up, he has to give an answer to the question, who will deliver me? Notice in this, the change. There are two changes here that indicates that Paul is speaking for himself on his behalf. Notice the two changes. First of all, there's a theological precision that he makes. And second of all, there's a change of a person that he's speaking from. Notice he says, he calls this Jesus Christ our Lord There's the proper identification of who Jesus Christ is as an indication that he is speaking differently here. But also then the phrase are. This is plural, possessive. He's no longer speaking in the singular, I. No longer speaking in the singular possessive, my. He's speaking here in the plural possessive, are. He's changed his audience here from the group the, the Jews that he was speaking to to defend, he now goes back to the Christians and reminds them, we have an answer to this. Praise be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul no longer speaking as the gospel defender, no longer speaking as one who is trying to engage the Jews. He no longer is trying to personify the person Uh, In calling them to embrace the gospel, he is now here in 25a, is speaking as the Christian saying, we have the answer. The answer is through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one who will deliver us. We who are wretched, we who are hopeless and powerless within ourselves, we, we know the answer to the one who's going to set us free from this body of death. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is our Lord. He's the deliverer. I love this. What is technically happening here is Paul is speaking exegetically. He's just so, so bound up that he has to give an answer and he writes it out. Thanks be to God. Now, he would have been really helpful to me if he just stopped right there. Right? If you just stopped right there, did the punctuation, nice little explanation point, and moved right on, there would be less debate, and my position would be really solid. Except he then adds this other phrase at the end, and it's our last point here is the problem summarized. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. All right, so Paul, if you're just speaking and you've engaged your audience here and you have entered into your audience and took on their position and you did it in a kind of friendly way instead of calling them out directly saying you, 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 but you said I, so you you were gently entering in uh, and then you gave the full despair of the problem, wretched man that I am. Then you give the Christian answer and if you just stopped right there, it would be nice and clean. I totally admit that. It would have been very clean at that point to move on, but he doesn't do that. He goes back and he summarizes his argument. And again, he summarizes it in this way. Here's the problem. While the inner man desires the law of God, while the inner man desires what is good, it is the outer man keeps falling short. Sin keeps ruling within us and keeps falling short so that While one could affirm the law is good, they're just going to find open hostility to the law in their members. By the way, just want to point out there that there is some theological uh, inconsistencies in that statement. 
Just to kind of inconveniently throw that out to you, if you're a believer view person and you want to hold on that this is Paul speaking as a believer, there are some inconvenient theological truths that are presented there. The first is this. Jesus says the heart of the problem is the inner man, not the outer man. Go read Mark chapter 7. When Jesus says, it's out of the heart flows immorality and impurity. It's not the external man, it's the internal man. And by the way, Jesus also said, it is from the heart that we commit all those immoralities. And if you think in your heart lustfully, you've committed adultery from your heart. So it is actually the inner man that actually has the problem as described by Christ. And oh, by the way, Paul has already said that my outer man is set free. Chapter 6. My outer man is able to be slaves of righteousness, verse 19, at the end of verse 19 of chapter 6. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness resulting in sanctification. Wait a second, Paul. You just taught the opposite in chapter 6. My outer man is free to live in righteousness. And then Jesus taught the opposite in Matthew chapter 5 and Mark chapter 7. It's the heart that is corrupted. So all that to say here is back in chapter 7, And verse 25, Paul is summarizing the position of the self-righteous Pharisee who is trying to save himself by the law. From his personal experience, that's how he feels. I desire to do the law, but I cannot. But from God's vantage point, it is this. Your heart is corrupted from very nature, and you cannot do what is right. That's the problem summarized. The law cannot deliver. It cannot save. Now, let me answer the big question, the big burden on everyone's heart, which is, how come this just feels like me? How come it feels like this, that I I head in this position where I desire internally to do right, and I want to keep the law, but I keep falling short? Why do I keep missing it? Well, there could be three answers. There are three reasons why. You could feel that Romans 7 is describing you and may indeed be describing you if one of these three things are true. The first is this. Because you could have not believed the gospel at all. You heard it, but you never embraced the gospel of God. You never believed the gospel that Paul was preaching, that we are justified by grace through faith alone that you were saved by the righteousness of God credited to your account, that you never believed in that gospel, that you had a form of the gospel you embraced, whether God had a perfect plan for your life, and so you're just, hey, take me, God. Wherever your plan takes me, that's where I want. But you didn't understand the gospel of God, that you were a sinner in need of a Savior, that God is holy and righteous, that you, there's nothing you could do to rescue yourself that you had had to turn and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and call out upon him and you will be saved. And that there is nothing you could do to conform yourself, to make yourself right. He has supplied for you through Jesus Christ all the righteousness that you need to be able to stand before him. And it is that righteousness, not only did he provide righteousness, he provided newness of life. And now he's given you his spirit to rule within you. And he's given you his word to lead you and guide you. So that you continue to live in Romans chapter 7, 13 to 25 as desiring but not able to perform because you never believe the gospel of God's grace. 
believed some form of it. And you then fell back into some kind of self-atonement. I will make myself right. Whenever I fell short, I will go fix it. I will do something to make God happy with me again so I get back on track. That's not the gospel. I say it like this. God saved you if he delivered you, if he rescued you, if he provided righteousness to you through Jesus Christ and you stand perfect and complete in the Lord Jesus Christ and he's covered all of your sins, past, present, and future, then what could you possibly do to make yourself right before God? The answer is nothing. You can do nothing. So the first reason I would live in Romans seven thirteen through 25 is because I haven't actually believed in the gospel of God, God's righteousness. The second is this. I believed it, but I just confused about sanctification. I, I believe the gospel. I know that that's what, how I'm saved, but I'm confused about the application of, of God's righteousness. I'm, I'm confused about spiritual warfare. So I know I'm saved by God's righteousness. I just think that God needs me to complete it. I need to do something to finish out this. So he started the good works, and I just need to finish it up. So that he told me the path, but I need to go by my own free will and choose what's right so that he would be happy with me and receive me. This is, again, a confusion of sanctification, a confusion of the gospel. And it's in those moments we will feel like Romans 7, 13 through 25 because we will see our weaknesses and our failures and we will continue, continually fall short. We will try to in those moments. And the, at the root of it, the struggle is we have a failure to understand spiritual warfare. We are in the midst of the spiritual warfare and instead of turning to the means that God gives us, we turn to ourselves. I'll just make another rule, keep that rule. I'm going to make myself right, and God will be happy with me. And so when you do that, you continue to live in Romans 7, 13 through 25, seeing what's good, but unable to perform it. Or the last condition that you could be in that would cause you to be living Romans 7 over and over again is this. You, fit, you continually walk in unbelief. Meaning you have believed that Christ is the only way. You believe that the uh, word of God uh, you know, says that we have been regenerated and, and that, again, our sins are covered. But in the moment of temptation, in the moment of trial, when it comes upon you, you revert to the old man and you walk in unbelief. You turn back and you fail to believe the promises of God or you fail to believe the truth of God's word and you fall back into your old practices. That's why you would persistently live in Romans 7. Let me illustrate it for you. And I uh, struggled the first hour to come up with an illustration because I didn't have it in my notes. So uh, and I didn't want to use an old illustration. You know, I've used driving before, and I've used you know, yelling at your spouse, and I've used kicking the cat, which people have reminded me multiple times. I must have something with my cat. The, uh, there are many sins that we could face temptation. Let, let me just pick this one, fear. Fear. Fear comes up in our heart. Well, how do we address the fear that comes up within our heart? Well, John says in 1 John that perfect love casts out all fear. The response to sinful fear is love. 
So that when fear comes in the heart, I have two choices. I either embrace that fear and let it rule me, or I turn to the scriptures and believe what the word of God says, that I am to walk in love. So I need to identify how I'm not loving in that situation. Well, the person who fails to put on the spiritual armor and take those thoughts captive and allows those fears to rule is going to continually fall short. It's not because grace of God hasn't supplied them the needs. It's not because God hasn't done his work in their heart. It's because they're walking in unbelief in the moment. They will not believe what that passage says. Perfect love casts out all fear. So what happens in that moment? We fail to put off the old man. We live in unbelief. We keep giving in to the lies of the flesh. We don't walk in the truth. We don't believe the truth. And when we do that, we are walking in the old man. We're giving in to our old practices, and we will fail. And then you will feel exactly like the Roman 7 man here, wretched man that I am. I desire, but I keep falling short. And why did you desire and keep falling short? Because you lived in unbelief. Because you wouldn't yield to the Spirit. Because you wouldn't submit yourself to the truth. Because you wouldn't put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Because you wouldn't walk by the Spirit of God and put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's why you continually failed there. Because you wouldn't believe the gospel in the moment of your temptation and trial. Those are at least three reasons why you may feel like you live in Romans 7, 13 to 25, but Christian, we don't live there. We don't live there. The reason why we don't live there is because we have been born of God. We have the Spirit of God. We've been rescued. We have the grace of God that has set us free. That's what Paul says in chapter 6. In verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We're dead. Dead to sin. Dead to sin's rule over us. Why? Because we've been baptized in Christ. and We've been joined into him. We are united with Christ now. And we live in newness of life. And we have died with Christ, verse 8 of chapter 6. We believe we're going to be raised with him. We're going to live with him. So we're no longer living in slavery to sin. We're living in slavery to righteousness now. The end of chapter 6. This is our new life. We are, as Paul said in Romans 13, 14, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. We walk in newness of life. To which at this point then, if you're thinking and you're wrestling through it, you're saying, okay, then how do I do that? How do I walk in newness of life? How do I walk in the Spirit? How do I walk in, in line with the gospel and what I believe? And I'm glad you asked that because that's answered in chapter 8, which we get to start next week. We are going to answer that very question, how we can live in the Spirit of God because it is, as Romans eight twelve says, or verse 13 says, If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Spirit-filled life is going to lead us to crucify the deeds of the body, to crucify the flesh, to walk in newness of life. And that doesn't come from you and me. It comes from God's work in us, ruling within us. That's why I love the promise that Paul makes in Galatians 5 and verse 16. He says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That's the hope that every Christian has. We've been born again, set free, we're slaves of righteousness. It is because we have the Spirit of God ruling and reigning within us. We have something more than the law. We're now free to keep the law by the spirits of God. And we'll begin to learn what that looks like next week. So come back next week. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the riches of your word, for the clarity that comes from your truth, just from the wisdom and understanding. For indeed, we have and are ministers of the new covenant It isn't because the old covenant failed. It's because we need your work. Your old covenant, your law, taught us our weakness and informed us of our failure. It showed us our need. And now we cry out to you, rescue us, Lord. And we are thankful that we know you. Through your word, we can know you and draw nearer to you. Through your spirit, we are given newness of life. It is through your marvelous work that we have the strength to endure and overcome. And indeed, we are not just giving over. We are yielding ourselves, and we are making our members slaves of righteousness, and we are walking in faith. And yet, when we look at all of our effort, we recognize that this effort is in line with and according to your marvelous design. And in every way, we're completely dependent on the spiritual resources that you've given us, the resources which enable us and strengthen us to overcome the resources that cause us to fix our eyes upon you and give you praise for every spiritual victory when we overcome. When we are weak, when we do fail, when we do fall short, when we do express unbelief, when we do drift, we are most thankful that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And we have been covered all of our sins, past, present, and future. That we are set free in Christ so that our position in Christ doesn't change by our failure. Your love for us doesn't change. And as a father, you willingly draw near to us and draw us to yourself so that we would be conformed into the very image of Christ and indeed we'd be recognized as your children. So may that be the case that we leave here, we leave striving to bear out the name Christian so that we would indeed have the confidence we are your children. Thank you for this marvelous work. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.